Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to move a bit around the city, starting in the West End for some comedy, then over to Grant Park for some public art. And in between, we'll start our new series, Speaking of Music. Up first, the founders of the West End Comedy Festival believe comedy has a way of tricking people into listening through laughter almost like accidental empathy. The festival will be held in the Lee and White Complex on the west side this weekend. Recently, Lois spoke with the co-founders of the festival, Ariel Kaplan and Joe Pettis via Zoom. Joe began their conversation by explaining how the festival came to be. Both of us, as well as a few other people involved with the festival, kind of just figured out that we were all running shows at venues that were very close to each other. And it was actually another local comic, I'll give him credit, Ian Aber, who one day said to me, y'all could run a comedy festival here. So that just kind of got the idea in my head. And Ariel and her co-producer, Karen Felix, they had been running shows at Wild Heaven Brewery. And I run shows at ASW Whiskey Exchange, which are literally just steps away from each other. And typically, you know, our shows are on different nights, but I thought, with Ian's kind of suggestion that it would be a, a real fun idea to just kind of put together a whole weekend of shows at all the venues so that we can then bring in local comics and out-of-town comics to kind of just have, you know, a weekend full of comedy. Why was it important to hold this festival in the West End neighborhood? It's a, I live in Adair Park, which is next to the West End and, and just a couple, couple minutes away from Lee and White and it's a wonderful area and it's on the Beltline. And I thought that it would be a way to highlight a really wonderful neighborhood. You know, every time I mention where this festival is, it's like a, it's like a 40, 60 thing where people are like, I've never heard of Lee and White before. I don't really know anything about the West End. So it's, it's going to bring a lot of people into this, this neighborhood that would otherwise not be able to experience it. And you actually partnered with West End Neighborhood Development, is that correct? Yes, we're, we're partnering and we're donating some of our proceeds from uh, the festival to WEND, or West End Neighborhood Development, which focuses on revitalizing and the continual re- revitalization of the West End neighborhood and, and making sure that it maintains its historic attributes. And that was important for us to make sure that we gave back to the community that we were holding this in. I read that you have outstanding female representation in the West End Comedy Festival. Would you tell us more? Yeah, we really do. Joe is our our wonderful male outlier. (laughs) (laughs) Ally and outlier. (laughs) Ally and outlier. You should put that on a t-shirt, Joe, honestly. (laughs) Just for this festival. So we have five producers total. We have myself and my co-producer that Joe mentioned, Karen Felix. And we have the founders of Hissy Fit Comedy, Haley Ballantine and Amber Chandler. And then we have Joe. And so that's four out of five of our producers are female, as well as our headliners. We have, how many headliners? We have four major, four or five major headliners, Joe? Well, actually, I think we're up to, we're up to six headliners now, but out of the six headliners, four of them are women comics as well, so. Who are some of these headliners? We have Maddie Smith, 
coming in from New York. She is on the last couple of seasons of the show Wild and Out with Nick Cannon's Wild and Out. And we also have Joyelle Nicole Johnson, who actually got started here in Atlanta, but then went on to move to New York. And since then, she's been on The Tonight Show a couple of times. Uh, she just released a special on Peacock that was nominated for the Critics' Choice Award. She's a, a great representation of comics who have come out of Atlanta, who have gone on to do, you know, bigger and better things, but come home, you know, to do festivals and stuff like that. Great. And you're partnering with breweries? Yes, we have uh, two breweries that we're partnering with. And then Joe's show is at the distillery. And then we have our late night shows actually at this spot that's just adjacent to Lee and White, this really great bar called Bog Social and Supply. So it's it's a mixture of, of everywhere that alcohol can be and served and made. <laughs> Breweries <laughs> and distilleries and bars. There's a common theme with comedy and alcohol there, so. Oh, what fun. <laughs> What was the audition process for the festival? I'm always curious about how you accept a comedian to perform. It was a mix. Our headliners, for example, our comics that we reached out to, a lot of them through personal connections. Uh, I mentioned Joyelle and Maddie earlier, but one of our other headliners is Ishmael Lutfi, and he actually used to be my roommate. He's another comic who started here in Atlanta but then has gone on and moved in LA, has done like the late night shows, has done Comedy Central. But, you know, but four years ago, him and I were both living in an apartment in East Atlanta together. And then we do have over 50 other performers, a mix of local and visiting comics who actually, we did a submission process. So comics send their best five minute video. And then we had independent local judges decide who they thought would best represent local and comedy from all around the country. So it's kind of a mix of both. Wow. I mean, this is entailed. You don't take it lightly. It's not open mic. No, no, no. no, no, It's been a process for sure. (laughs) Sounds like it. Ariel, you work in the film industry as a prop master, as well as your stand-up and your comedy work. You're the co-founder of Fire City Comedy. First, what does your day-to-day life as a prop master involve? It's a very long day. And, you know, props is anything that the actor holds, touches, or eats, wears a lot of times, like watches and things. And so my day usually involves talking to the actors, explaining things that I'm giving them it's it's a lot of weapons and things like that so we have we have guns and fake guns and fake knives so explaining how to use those safely how to hold a a pencil the right way <laughs> it's like it's a it's a, a drawing they have to pretend like they're drawing just like to make nice delicate lines to replicate the drawing explaining food scenes and what they're eating and and things like that do you work for one specific studio or, you know, do you have a business card that says prop master for hire? <laughs> we'll work for laugh. Yes, right. I tell jokes and I sometimes do my job. <laughs> <laughs> my business card is is my is word of mouth. It's reputation. We're we're all freelancers. In fact, my co-producer for Fire City is also a prop master, Karen Felix. So both of our days are quite hectic. And she's also a comedian, so she she runs from set to shows as often as we can. But yeah, it's we're all freelancers for the most part. And it's just making sure you do a good enough job that uh, you get rehired again by somebody else. Tell us more about Fire City Comedy. Karen and I started Fire City Comedy at the very, very beginning of the pandemic. The, the room we hold it in is the the garden club at wild heaven, which is a very, very big venue space with the ability to open kind of garage doors that are built on in on both sides and have a big HVAC system. So it was one of the only places in Atlanta that we felt was safe enough to do comedy during the very beginning of the pandemic when it was the most scary and comedy had kind of ceased in Atlanta. And I had moved into right down the street uh, on the belt line and I I mentioned the space and that it might be the only place that we can kind of do comedy safely in Atlanta. So we decided to start it there so that the scene could kind of continue during a really, really scary time. And in a time when we really felt like the world needed it more than ever, because we were so 
isolated and and then we were really happy and it just kind of kept going it just got bigger and bigger and uh, wild heaven's been wonderful and we're very happy with what it's turned into just creating a safe space for various backgrounds and people to tell their stories joe you are the founder of one up comedy why did you want to start one up i've been doing comedy in atlanta for a long time i started back in 2008 and kind of just started producing you know picking up shows at different venues like i my first show ever was at 529 east atlanta and then i started doing shows at places like sweetwater brewery and so i decided that kind of like i want to be a stand-up comedian but I, I thought my path changed at some point where i realized that i'm a good comic but i'm a much better show producer uh-huh. so I just started putting together shows and one up was a kind of inspired. I'm always, I was a big Mario video game player as a kid and, and one up comes from that. So, yeah, so I just kind of was inspired, you know, and also just when I started, there were not as many shows in Atlanta. So I wanted to produce shows for one, so I could perform, but also to provide stage opportunity for, you know, other comics as well, but also bring in comics from around the world, really to showcase just how good Atlanta is for comics and for audiences. Like we, a lot of these great comics are coming out of Atlanta these days because the audiences here are better than anywhere else. Like, I don't, I don't, I can't tell you exactly why I just have traveled and I just can say that. So um, that's partially what it was is I just wanted to provide a space for comics, but also a space for the audience here in Atlanta uh, to see some of the best comedy they can see. I imagine for some comedians being in the West End Festival, maybe they're first live performance since the pandemic hit. Joe, what was it like for you returning to the stage and touring again last year? It was different. <laughs> but the thing about stand-up comedy is there's no there's no real absolutes and there's no real guarantees. So every show is different, I would say. But it's more been, you know, just trying to find what that comfort level is. Getting back in there. For me, as it goes on, again, the audiences almost seem like they appreciate comedy more than ever before, which is beneficial for us. Almost like they, they need it a little bit more. So I have noticed that. But otherwise, you know, it was a little scary at first. But again, every time you get on stage is a little bit scary. So I think for us, it's kind of like, you know, there was no certainty with this job. Just the pandemic kind of was like a reminder of that. I remember Louis Black did a show that was turned into a streamed show because it was just before the nation shut down and he titled it, Thank You for Risking Your Life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ariel, same question for you. I asked Joe, do you feel like you're risking your life, or did you feel like that when you returned to live work? You mentioned Fire City, that that was a, a safe space at Wild Heaven. What about up playing in other venues? I was very nervous at first, mostly for my, my job, because if we get sick, we get tested like five times a week, and if we get sick, we're out of a job um, on a film set because it can shut down a whole production. So I was a little nervous about that that aspect for sure. And also health and other people's health. But Joe said it really, really well. It was, it's a need at some point. And that need between the audience and the comedians to perform and to, to watch comedy and to the escapism and to just laugh through something very serious and laugh at something very serious. If we could find a way to do that safely, we're very, very happy. It's more, I, I always start my shows thanking the audience for coming out. I, I did that before the pandemic, but I always do it now because we need them and because it is more of a risk for them because they're sitting in the audience and we're on stage and we can like you know we can leave so it is something that they have to be there because they love it a lot and and we make it as safe as it possibly can be for them because of our appreciation well and what kind of covid protocols will be in place for this festival we are going to ask audience members to keep their masks on when they are not eating or drinking at their areas. And we're going to try and work with the seating as best as possible to space it out. Like I said, that garden room is really well ventilated and it's gigantic. It fits like upwards of 300 people and, and we're not, we're not going to be at that capacity. So we are going to use spaces that are, that are larger 
and smaller capacities. Great. Ariel, I watched a video of a stand-up show you did in November. Would you? <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> Joe, I watched one of your shows too. But I was hoping, Ariel, you would talk about your stance on Atlanta's official slogan, the city too busy to hate. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember learning that phrase, what our official slogan was when I was in middle school. And I just was like, that sounds wrong. You know, the city too busy to hate. And I, I went home and I told my parents about it that day. And they were like, they had never thought about how weird it was. So when I finally started doing stand-up, my parents actually reminded me of the fact that I thought that was hilarious. And the whole idea being that if Atlanta's too busy to hate, you know, when you say that you're too busy to do something, that that implies that if you had the time, you would absolutely do that thing first. (laughs) (laughs) Not what the mayor and the city council had in mind. No, not exactly. Like, yeah, you should be, you shouldn't be distracted to not hate people. You should just not, not want to in the first place. So I think that was very funny. And, you know, it was rooted in addressing, I think, a lot of business people's concern about boycotts because, you know, that that was in the early 60s, I think, that came about. So if not pre-Civil Rights Act, pre-Voting Rights Act, and not long after. Yeah, it's, it's reasoning was good. It's, it's, uh, it's wording was just it left things to be desired. Well, but as Joe pointed out, Atlanta audiences are so embracing and receptive and eager to laugh. So maybe we are too busy to hate. It's true. And the West End specifically, uh, me and Karen found, and I know Holly and Amber and and Joe has found that the people that live in Atlanta and the people that gravitate to the West End, it has just been such a welcoming audience where everyone feels so comfortable saying whatever they want to say on stage and saying their truths and making it funny. And it's been, it's been so receptive and he's right. We go all over the country and there's, there's really no audience like Atlanta, just the diversity that is in an audience. Ariel Kaplan and Joe Pettis, co-founders of the West End Comedy Festival. The festival is happening this weekend, February 11th through the 13th, in the Lee and White Complex on the West Side. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from Atlanta musician Chelsea Shag. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, and for Lois Reitzes, great to have you along. It's time now for our brand new segment, Speaking of Music. In this series, we'll be hearing from local Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Chelsea Shagadevich, and you may know me as Chelsea Shag or Ocean. I would describe my music as raw, very authentic to me, playful, sweet, soulful, rockin', funky. I play many instruments. I play drums, bass, guitar, piano, and I love to sing and use my voice to beatbox. If you kiss, 
I also play the gong and crystal quartz singing bowls. I do sound baths. I got started in music just by singing and listening to so much amazing music my parents would play in the house. And I started playing drums at age seven and eventually found the guitar and started playing guitar and eventually went to school for guitar and singing. And um, it's just something I always practiced and loved doing. I come in with an idea and I'll jam my ideas with my friends. Kiss My Mind in particular ended up being what it was because I showed a group of loving friends the song and we all jammed and, and this is how it, it turned out. And I feel like there's a lot of love in it. What motivates and inspires me is connection with others, the dance of relationship, and I'm inspired by my own emotions, processing my own emotions. I write songs to let it out, to release, and to, to be vulnerable, and I hope that vulnerability is contagious and that it inspires others. To know that I have the opportunity to share my heart, that is what inspires me. to get strange you know I was just feeling really strange <laughs> in this point in my life and it was right before the pandemic and I was doing a lot of contemplation and this is what came out after listening to a lot of Jacob Collier and um, Stevie Wonder so it's like a poppy jazzy swinging kind of feel these two songs I really just wanted to let shine again because they came out during the pandemic and I want to give them a little more life again. I'm working on so much new music, but I'm gonna let these sing for a minute. I hope you like it. I choose to call Atlanta home because of my people. This city is filled with so many strong individuals who are absolutely talented and kind and beautiful and wanting to experience just deep connections. That's my experience here. On February 10th at 7.30 at Ashtanga Yoga in Atlanta, I will be facilitating an hour-long sound bath. And what that looks like is you come into the room, you lay down, there will be pillows and blankets for you, and you just enjoy the journey of the sounds of the gong and the sound bowls and sea drum. What that does is slows down your brain waves and brings you into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your natural state of healing. Please come and enjoy. There's more info on my website, chelseashag.com. Thank you. Writer and musician Chelsea Shag. You can find out more information about Chelsea on our website, wabe.org slash citylights.
Coming up, a listen back to our conversation with the collaborative team behind the Reflection Tunnel in Grant Park. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. MARTA's public art program, Artbound, has been beautifying stations around our city for over four years now. Recently, they collaborated with Atlanta artist Adam Bostic and experimental art company Dashboard to reimagine the tunnel that leads to the historic King Memorial MARTA station. The result is Reflections, a stunning multimedia art project that combines actual light reflectors with audio reflections from area residents. Last summer, I spoke with Dashboard's Courtney Hammond, artist Adam Bostic, and the director of Martyr's Artbound Project, Catherine Durga. Durga began by giving an overview of the Artbound Project. So Artbound is MARTA's public art program, and we launched in June of 2017. And this Reflection Tunnel project is one of our largest so far public art installations we've done. We've done lots of murals. We've had performing arts in the stations, music and theater and dance. And so um, this is the first of many, we hope, sculptural installations near and in our stations. Well, it looked like an amazing undertaking. Let's talk a little more about how the process came to be. You partnered with Dashboard originally, is that right? That's right. Yeah, Dashboard, of course, local, very well-respected curatorial organization. And basically, we had a problem and they had an answer for us. So (laughs) we went to them and said, hey, this tunnel needs beautification. It's an important pedestrian walkway from the transit-oriented development that's being built behind the station. It's also an important pedestrian walkway for people coming from Memorial Drive to connect over to the Sweet Auburn neighborhood and to Old Fourth Ward. And so we wanted to just improve the overall experience, you know, knowing Dashboard, knowing that they are able to come up with a lot of really creative solutions for places that a lot of people have given up on, you know, before this, I thought this was an ideal partnership. And sure enough, they came up with something that was, to my mind, not only really creative and cool, but also just really elegant in its simplicity. So by um, tapping Adam to complete this project, we were just really thrilled to have that partnership, how it worked out together was so great. Well, it really did work out. It's quite stunning to drive through it. It genuinely took my breath away. Adam, when you were presented with the project, how much creative freedom did you have and and how quickly did you know what you wanted to do? As far as creative freedom, it was really like a, a collaborative effort on trying to figure it out. But, you know, being one of the first intersections in Atlanta, so we were trying to think of something that was creative, that was also bringing light into the tunnel. And so, you know, we commonly use a lot of different materials in art fabrication. So it was wanting to just come up with something that was timeless and something that was a new and, and innovative. And I mean, they really had a lot of creative freedom, but it was more pitching a lot of different ideas to how can we bring light into that tunnel. And it all just kind of, I think, kind of synced up all the transit properties. The materials being road reflectors, you know, they're indestructible and they're really will be vibrant forever, you know, and I went to a lot of effort to try to find the most colorful and high quality ones. A lot of research went into this to make sure that not only is it like a simple material, but it's like the best version of that Mm -hmm. um, to be, you know, incorporated into artwork and such a material that you see every single day. I found that a lot of them were kind of lackluster. And so I found a, a one group that was making them, they were just so bright and really colorful. And we did a mock-up of it and put together a pattern and, you know, experimented with different patterns, but I wanted to make something that was just really almost timeless. It, it doesn't need to be something that is after a year or two, it doesn't make sense, but something that be there forever and be beautiful and also incorporate other people's stories into it and it be a thoughtful piece. And Courtney, you could probably speak to the other people's stories that Adam's referencing. What's the other half of this project? The other half of this project is a historical archive of the neighborhood 
at its present moment. This is a permanent project and, and a very historically rich and important part and neighborhood of Atlanta. Um, we wanted to make sure to pay homage to that and the people who are currently doing such powerful work in that neighborhood. And obviously the term reflection can mean a few things at once, literally with the reflectors and also conceptually with the historical archive. We have plaques that we have started. They're black diamonds that go in the center of the beautiful design that Adam did. You can follow along them and with your phone, click on them uh, on a QR code and listen to a live interview with these neighbors talking about their experiences throughout history in the neighborhood and to the present and their aspirations for the future of the neighborhood. We worked with Historic Atlanta, which is led by a historian, Scott Morris, who's actually a neighbor of the tunnel. He lives literally um, right next to it. And we tapped him to introduce us to some of the leaders within that neighborhood who are doing great work. For instance, Receipt Forest, who has been preserving Word, which is the first Black radio station in America. Hey, we're here with Receipt the Forest. Uh, this is Scott Morris, and we are recording now. And so, Receipt, if you would just kind of tell me your, your history with the Sweet Auburn community, however you want to start that story. I stumbled on to the community um, some 30 odd years ago, two years into the lease. A black woman comes to the door and opens it, sticks her head in while I'm doing hair, and tells me that the first black radio station in America, WEID, was directly above me. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I was elated to learn the legacy, and then elation turned to enrage because I'm thinking, how dare the people who came before me not bothered to preserve a legacy that rich. I just, I still can't understand it. So for 20 years, I've been promoting and preserving the legacy of WERD radio. Oh, wow. Which was the first black radio station in North America. And so there's been, you know, long-term work that people have been doing in the neighborhood, but also an example of another neighbor that we worked with is uh, Maggie Lopez, who is one of the owners of Meat Barrio. I was actually a child when the restaurant opened. I was about 10 years old. And what do you kind of remember from that time? I just remember abandoned buildings and um, not really like a lot of traffic in the area. Do you remember why your family decided to open a restaurant there? Uh, yeah, uh, we actually have a house in Taco Town. Uh, okay, right first- behind me. Yeah, we first started in Taco Town. Um, my parents, when they came to Atlanta, and they started selling food in the house. And so a couple of years later, around 2000, they decided to find a location, which was down the street from the house. And okay. um, from there, it took like a couple of years to like renovate and all that stuff. Because the building was, uh, it was like a grocery store. So we had to like renovate and Oh, wow. And where did your parents move to Taco Town from? From Mexico. They arrived from Mexico. And so then when y'all were selling food uh, out of the house, who was the customer base then? Uh, Our customer base was a lot of construction workers that arrived from Mexico. Um, Basically, the community, uh, a lot of Mexicans lived in Taco Town. We were the only people selling food. So it was like a whole restaurant in my house, like. I was little. I can remember just a lot of families and stuff, and we only had about four tables to seat oh, wow. six people. And until this day, those same guys come to the restaurant. Oh, wow. Yeah, the people that have been going to the house, they've been coming and supporting us here at the restaurant. And during COVID, her mission was to drive around the neighborhood and deliver food to people in need. And so just the kindness that was shown from all of these different neighbors' stories when we were archiving them was so powerful that it became a really integral part of the project as we started with six interviews, but there are hundreds of spaces for these plaques. And so this is a growing project that MARTA will continue with us where we will continue to interview and invite neighbors throughout time to sort of give their story so that it could be incorporated into Reflection Tunnel. And we hope that it's just an ongoing archive and this piece will you know, keep growing and keep being relevant and important to the city.
Right on. What a wonderful use of the double meaning of reflection. It's perfect. No, we couldn't help ourselves. <laughs> I, I want to speak to that while my heart is full, because I think that it's really, you know, we've been working so hard on this for so long and seeing everyone show up there and just watching everyone go through the tunnel every day as we're doing it, honking their horns and people that come through that tunnel every day to go take Marta are just so overly thankful. Every day we saw them come through and they were just clapping and just how beautiful it was and so thankful that they get to walk through there every day. And being a part of it, that is not just a mural or something like that, but it is a community art project where people like uh, Reese and Maggie and Princess Wilson are ha- get to have their words immortalized there. And my artwork around it is just a frame that helps take the uh, somebody that maybe wouldn't get a chance to tell their story to be there permanently and they can walk down and uh, show someone that, you know, here's my story and everyone gets to hear it. It's pretty awesome. So it was really a humbling collaboration. It really is. Adam, can you speak a little more to the process of the installation as an outsider looking at it? It looks like such an enormous undertaking. (laughs) It was a lot. Uh, So I own a company that art design and we fabricate art, large scale art and furniture for a lot of hotels and restaurants in Atlanta and around the country. And we're always inventing and coming up with new materials that we're working with is, which also kind of inspired me for the, the reflection material, but undertaking something of that scale, you know, I work with a, a lot of geometry and things like that, trying to fabricate different art, but also in that way, the process was coming up with the pattern, then kind of simplifying it and creating templates and then just being able to map it out and just get a system going to do it. But it was pretty difficult to to come up with a pattern and being able to replicate that on the wall. But once it was all figured out, we were able to, you know, systematically. It's uh, like a machine. Yeah, we, we just got it done, but it was um, really rewarding. It was instant gratification because we came up with a really good system. And then also just the transformation, watching it happen was like something out of a, uh, I don't know, out of some kind of old computer <laughs> computer system <laughs> because we painted, it was all graffiti and uh, we repaired the tunnel and then we painted it all uh, matte black and then slowly mapped it out. And it was, uh, it was like the old Pac-Man game or something where you just watched all the dots appear and everybody was so pleased with just daily watching it come together. But it was hard, it was. But it once we figured out how to do it, it went smooth. Can we wow people with some numbers? How many reflectors were used in this? Uh, roughly 20,000 reflectors, road reflectors. <laughs> insane. <laughs> yeah. That's so insane. Yeah. And how big was your team that helped you with the install? I, I would say at one time we had seven to eight people working at a time, but collectively, with all the people involved, uh, close to 20 people, I would say. Yeah. That's still like a thousand reflectors per person. Mm-hmm. It was pretty <laughs> okay. wild to, to, at the end of the day, I said, we would count the boxes and the and mounts and like, you know, you guys, we put up, you know, 800 reflectors today or 2000 reflectors a day. And they're like, they didn't believe it. A new truckload would come on site every, every other day. Boxes and boxes of these reflectors. It was also just managing how to get them all perfect. The time that goes into making sure every one of them are, is absolutely straight and absolutely level because that's the kind of the beauty of it, of it, that it's so perfectly level. Everything is straight and evenly placed. That's the art of it to me is making it just like, almost like when you look down the wall, it, the lines are perfect. It looks like it's floating off the wall. And in order to do that, you have to make, be really meticulous and manage that, that install. Phenomenal. What an effort. So Catherine, how are you guys going to top this next time? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> keeps me awake at night. <laughs> so we have a number of station rehabilitations coming up and we're going to be overhauling all 38 stations. So Artbound is kind of following that progression and we're looking to install public art in each of those stations. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have followed the MARTA 2040 visioning. And so this is a long process, but this is steady. 
And so we've already started. We have commissioned an artist to complete our airport project, which is going to be a large mosaic at the airport, 15 feet high by 70 feet long. Artist Michael Jones. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And so he's completed the painting that will then become a mosaic after we take it to a mosaic fabricator and they build it and then they bring it on site and install it. So it's a really fun process to kind of have the artist work with the mosaicist to make sure that the painting is, you know, properly reflected in the mosaic. And so we've got that. We've got Indian Creek Station, which is going to get a landmark artwork. We've got HE Homes here in the next year or two. Five Point Station is going to get some wonderful things. And so, yeah, we're just marching along. So you should start to see some nice, good-sized projects in the near future. How do you ensure that the different installations reflect the, not to overuse the word reflect, sorry. <laughs> How do you ensure that it reflects the appropriate community when you're, when you're choosing the artist and the artwork? Yeah, it's really important to us. So for instance, with this project, that was something that Dashboard and Adam and I all talked about. How do we make sure that this is a project that does reflect the community? Because Artbound's mission states that it you know, that we want to reflect and enhance the communities where we reside. So that's kind of number one for MARTA. We feel like we're a connector. And so we want to make sure that we're, you know, properly serving that role. And so that was one way that we thought to bring in the historical part of the project was to talk about the reflections. And we thought about the connection of the tunnel and the way that Atlanta is such a connector. You know, here our airport is apparently about two hours flight from almost everywhere in the U.S. And Atlanta has long been a connector, has been a train connector, has been a even a footpath, you know, connection point before, you know, Europeans colonized the area. So it's connecting and having those memories of the area and carrying that on was important to us. We work a lot with community development groups, neighborhood associations. A big point of this for me is not having Marta come in and say, Um, hey, we're putting an artwork here. What do you want? It's to work with groups who already work in the neighborhoods. And so kind of building those relationships too. Very important. Can you speak a little, or is this outside your wheelhouse to everything else that's being done to King Memorial Station? So we are currently in the process of building a transit-oriented development behind King Memorial Station. Um, And this is on MARTA property that had just been leased out, ground leased out to a developer. And so what they're building there is a residential property that will um, have a percentage of affordable housing. And that's where I'm not hundred percent on the numbers. And so forgive me for that, but it will have some percentage of affordable housing in it. And it's meant to be, you know, to create density close to transit. And so that's, what's being built there right now. The station itself, you know, has the mural on the front and now we have a reflection tunnel kind of to the side. And so I think we've done a really great job with enhancing it. And I know that what we'd love to do going forward is kind of connecting it more to the historic district. And so creating, helping create some wayfinding that can point folks in that direction as well. Fantastic. Courtney, I can't have you here and not talk about the ramen bar. So could you explain the glow in the dark ramen bar for people who are unfamiliar with that dashboard project? Sure. Uh, Nakamura K is the name of the glow in the dark ramen bar. It means house of Nakamura and it is the world's first glow in the dark ramen bar in a collaboration between dashboard and Zuizu, um, which is another really talented design firm led by Ami Suki in Atlanta. We created collectively this really beautiful velvet and gold laden intimate dining space inside of a 20 foot shipping container that is from the outside completely just looks like an everyday shipping container. Um, When you open the door, you really do walk into an otherworldly experience. We were able to bring in actors who are serving the role as yokai spirits which are Japanese spirits that guide you through the experience and really make it make sense why you're eating glowing ramen. It has to do with an old family story and a search for their parents who were lost when the seas overtook the moon one night. It's very like magical story. And their children that are serving the ramen are constantly on the search for their parents. And whenever they get close to their parents, as the ramen bar moves around the world and around the country, the produce starts to glow. 
So every time that you eat the glowing ramen, it means that they are getting close to their parents and you're helping them by every bowl that you eat, figure out exactly where they are. The story's ongoing, you know, on Instagram, it talks about like the birthdays, it gets really heavy in the family uh, design and emotionally it's like really touching story too. So it's not just glowing ramen for ramen's sake. Once you actually come to uh, one of the dinners, you receive a gold token. That gold token gets you into other experiences for Nakamura K. So for example, whenever Nakamura K went to Hollywood and was on Mount Yamashiro, people who had gotten the ramen in Atlanta who received a gold coin were able to get into that experience for free. And people did travel wow. across the country to continue to be a part of the story. So it's also about family building and connecting people and really like non-traditional ways which is something the dashboard's really proud of. I think with every project we try to do that, it's like, how do you connect people in like a way they didn't expect? What a story. We are excited about reopening Nakamura. It was just such a beloved project on both of our ends. And, you know, I can't talk about it without talking about all of the people who made it was not just our two companies. It was like a lot of really talented artists that had a hand in it. So, and chefs, you know, it's a very chef forward project. But yeah, that, that, that is a project that may come back along with some other wild people connecting projects that we have coming up. Oh, well, we'll look forward to that. I ate, I ate the glow in the dark ramen and it was delicious. You did. Yeah, it was so good. It was so good. As someone who experienced <laughs> it, can you tell me a little bit about the connections that you felt? Yeah, it was very, well, it definitely was very mysterious. So you wait sort of in this area where you're, you really don't know what's about to happen. You're like, is this where we eat the ramen? When, when are we eating the ramen? Is something going to glow soon? We didn't know. And then we were led into the container again, not sure what was going to happen next, but it's really, once you get in there, it's so cool. And there, you're only in there, at least in this iteration, you were only in there with about maybe six or seven people. Yeah. Everybody's kind of experiencing at the same time. And that's the coolest thing about, I think, public art is that that sense of wonder that it builds also right. makes a community among right. the people who are seeing it and experiencing it because everybody's like, gosh, this is so cool. Right. Right. You know, it, it takes away those barriers between strangers. And so, yeah, it was just, it's a really great experience. I love it. Adam, looking over your website, one installation piece really caught my eye. Can you share a little bit about the light around us? So the light around us, we was a sculpture we built Pretty amazing, actually. That's kind of a, one of the first times working with LEDs in the sensors. So it is a sculpture that integrates LED lights and sensors in the sculpture that senses the environment that you're in. And it's a collaboration with Pablo Nieco that uh, when you get in the environment, it has sound and air quality. Everything is in that space is tied into that sculpture that creates almost like these Rorschach patterns that intensifies in different colors. So for instance, there is a, actually a Marta where it was installed at the Metropolitan uh, on the West End by Weston Mall, there is a Marta train that trains would go by. Even the subtle sounds, you could see the lights slowly vibrate and move. And then uh, while we were finishing the sculpture, I believe uh, Jesse with TVS Jesse Altman was monitoring the air quality sensors that was tied into the sculpture and he had called and said hey what's going on with the sculpture well we were putting an epoxy floor in and so the air quality was changing and it was affecting the sculpture so it's pretty wild oh um, my gosh yeah it's uh really it's like breathing with a piece of artwork <laughs> yeah it was like yeah it was like a living piece of artwork you know I think it's really cool and it could be used in a lot of different applications for you know, people that maybe can't sense that their environment is changing and but the artwork could tell you. Yeah, it's pretty wild, but we're working You're hot. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah, it's hot in here. <laughs> but uh we build a, a lot of uh, a lot of art and and uh design help design and create a, a lot of art and working with other artists and working with dashboard and uh helping create the opportunity for artists to build things bigger. I'm uh, really proud of that to be able to take people, you know, maybe people's ideas that are smaller or maybe not have a chance or the space to build it. And we help them design and build it bigger. So we build quite a bit of public art. 
I'm really humbled by this whole opportunity and that, uh, you know, I grew up in Atlanta and I think that area by Oakland Cemetery was always a really cool area. We would always go to Daddy D's barbecue and then going down Memorial to into Atlanta and just to have the opportunity to build that there. I'm just really thankful for Dashboard and Marta Artbound and it's really an awesome life uh, changing thing for me and for it to be such a timeless thing and that it got to not just include myself and and these awesome people but more to come it's just one of the greatest things so i'm very thankful artist adam bostick marta's katherine durga and dashboards courtney hammond you can learn more about the grant street reflection tunnel on our website wabe.org city lights or even better head over and check it out in person you've been listening to city lights our daily exploration of arts and culture Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Atlanta fashion designers who recently got their line picked up by a major national retailer. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and I invite you to connect with City Lights on social media. You can find us at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow Lois on Twitter. She's at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.